Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, I'm Adam Woodhams and with me is Jenny Dillon. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic. And welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Garden Better. Now, in this episode, we're going to have a little bit of a look at some difficult soils. We're going to bust another big garden myth. And I'm going to have a chat with gardener extraordinaire, even more extraordinary, perhaps, than Jenny Dillon. No. (laughs) Phil, No. Phil Dudman. And of course, at the end of the episode, we will have Milton Black. He's going to talk about gardening by the moon. So we'll kick this episode off with a little chat that's inspired by a listener. JP of Belrose in Sydney dropped us an email about their soil conundrum, how to garden with a really mixed bag of soils. And Jen, you'll find this one interesting. We've got a combination of sandy bush soils, rocky soils, which is kind of typical with the the sandy bush soil stuff, Mm. but then some clay thrown in for good measure. That's really weird. It is a bit of a weird one. So why don't we unpack this stage by stage and uh, see if we can help JP out a little bit. Okay. Now, the sandy bush soils, they in themselves can be difficult to deal with. And we have kind of brushed on these a little bit before, haven't we? Yeah. Well, they don't have much nutrient in them. Mm-hmm. And they, they tend to, they're very recognisable soils too, aren't they? They often look sandy. They look crystalline, you know, and yeah, they're, they're and very you, close to touch. And you can feel it, yeah. And I remember way back in, in the Paleolithic era when I was at, mm-hmm. at TAFE doing <laughs> soil science, we used to do the little tests so you become familiar with soils yes. about, you know, discovering the plasticity of, of clay soils and stuff. And you'd test the sandy soil and it just basically didn't broke. bind together at no, all. There was nothing, nothing holding it together, which mm. means it, it has an absence of some of those fine materials. It doesn't have any organic matter through there that's helping to bind it together. And the big problem is, one of your favourite words, it's hydrophobic. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the stuff that we have to overcome, isn't it? We, yeah. So what are the stages there that we have to deal with? Jem, we've got to, we've got to start trying to get some moisture in there. Well, the problem with sandy soil and, and clay together, I mean, it, once, you, once you get those two elements, it add moisture, it ca- becomes a form of concrete because the, the sand fall, falls in between the gaps, mm. the air gaps that you do have with, with clods of clay. Well, I think you'll find in this instance that, that what uh, JP is dealing with is something that's that similar to an, a situation I encountered with a garden that we used to have, where you get a situation of rocks, uh, big sandstone slab rocks, you know, big floaters mm. as they mm. get called, and they have pockets and gaps between them. What happens is over time they build up almost like a sedimentary material in the bottom. And I remember I was um, trying to get some landscaping work done at our old place and I dug down into these gaps because I needed to run some drainage through and I found a material that was like bricky sand. You know, bricky sand is Mm. very sticky because it it has a high clay content and the deeper I got, the stickier this stuff got. So I think you'll find 
that it is actually a naturally existing what JP probably has is pockets of this this naturally existing very right. clay material. See, I I initially thought that it had been kind of dumped there. Mm. Well, that is a that is a possibility that there could be some material like that through there. So if we assume just a regular sandy bush soil, um, what you need to do is overcome that water repellency because that's the that's what hydrophobic means is that it's water repellent. So you can do that um, with some of the additive products. There's a lot of really good soil wetting products which yep. can help to overcome that. And in this sort of situation, you're generally going to find that I think one of the liquids is best. So you mix it up and pour it on or, or have a hose on and that helps to start getting that moisture down in there. But then we need to build up the organic matter in yeah. the soil, don't That's we? The That's thing, the, the organic matter is, is your problem solver for both Sandy and clay soil. Yes. And I think the interesting thing here too is that we're approaching this from the point of view of growing uh, traditional and, and contemporary type of plants in that garden. But the other approach, of course, is that you grow plants that are appropriate for that type of soil. Right. So you so you select some plants that will happily grow in those very sandy and, and open conditions. And, you know, a lot of the things like the banksias and grevilleas and many of the natives will quite happily grow in that sandy soil. So you've got two ways to go. You can either try and improve the soil to suit plants that you want to put in, or you can do a little bit of research and find the right natives for your area that will grow in that sandy soil without needing the modification. So that's really the two sort of approaches I guess you can take there, isn't it, Jen? Yeah. I think I think do both. I mean, the natives will still survive when the soil is healthier. They're not going mm. to die because you give them a bit of food. No, no, that's that's it provided, of course, you know, you start to look at that area of phosphorus sensitive natives well, yeah. and you don't use anything that's that's too high in, in phosphorus. But yeah, that, so I think there's there's a few different options there. Um, JP did say that uh, that he likes or she likes um, a lot of perennial type plants. So mm-hmm. if the majority of perennials to grow them, you will need to to really look at improving that soil dramatically through the addition of organic matters like composts and yeah. um, keeping the soil well mulched. But breaking that water repellency is always going to be the big one. And the rocky terrain, now that's actually probably not as hard to deal with as you can imagine. You you have to just change your mindset a little bit and start thinking about that as being um, a landscape asset yes. rather than a pain in the proverbial. And I'm a big fan of pocket planting, you know, so creating little spots, grabbing some smaller rocks from the garden, using that to to create some small low walls around larger floater rocks and create little pockets where you can actually plant into and then you can have things cascading down over some of those exposed rocks. So that's a way you can you can work with it as a definitely an asset. But if if it's rocky terrain as in a lot of loose rock in the soil, um, again, you can you can deal with that. Plants That's don't mind growing around that. No, no, it's not a problem at all if it's in the soil. Mm, yeah, mm. but uh, to me, that's if if you're dealing with large floaters of rock, then creating planting pockets can be one of the best things. And you to know do what? And you can plant if you're into native plants that beautiful lily, Sydney rock lily. Oh yes, the yes the um the the, the orchid one the, yes as in yes yeah, yeah it's yeah, an orchid which is, but they call it a little yeah which is absolutely gorgeous because it'll appreciate that drainage and, yes and in fact you can even be planting in pocket planting like that you can even be planting things like cymbidiums in the ground because the as long as they're not in the ground in the ground if you create a pocket like that you fill it up with an orchid mix and you can put a cymbidium in there and it will quite happily grow in the in that sort of situation because so pocket planting is a bit like um. 
planting with pot plants. Effectively, yeah. In yeah. in many respects, you're you're creating small areas where you're growing yeah. into. It's like creating little window boxes on rocks yes. or something. Yeah, yeah, that's a sweet way to say it. Um, and clay. Now, you know, clay is funny stuff, isn't it? Clay is wonderful. Mm, it's, it's so often disparaged, but I work in clay and I have no problem with it at all. It's mm, very misunderstood. Yeah, we we have very, very unusual soil at our place that the, the top, I suppose, 30 centimetres or so is what looks like a very fine soil but is in fact silt because we would have at one stage been a riverbed. riverbed so yeah. it's very, very clay and when it gets wet it gets sticky and then underlaying that is solid clay. And this means planting at our place has been very difficult because you put a lot of things in the ground and effectively they're going to drown as soon as you get lots of rain because the, that topsoil, yes. even though it does drain well, it stays really moist for a long period it of does. time. And having solid clay underneath, that means the water table rises very quickly. So what I've actually done is created raised planting mounds Mm -hmm. um, where we've had to excavate soil for one thing or another. I've created big raised planting mounds and left the chunks of clay through that. And I've got things like citrus and pineapples growing on big raised planting mounds. Um, And the clay ends up working like giant water crystals. So it it retains moisture within the rest of this soil and you've still got your good drainage so Mm -hmm. it's not getting too wet. Um, Because I think the important thing to understand about clay is it is actually very rich in a lot of uh, minerals and nutrients. But you just have to release it. You have to release it, yeah, that's the thing. And that's where you have to get that biological activity in the soil because it's Mm -hmm. all those little critters that help to release all of those nutrients and make them available for your plants. So... All three of those soils, yes, they do present some problems, but certainly nothing um, insurmountable. I think I think um, JP can get quite a nice garden happening there. It might just take a, a little bit of a little bit of care and planning. And I, I hope we've answered some of those questions. If there's anything out there that you'd like to know about gardening, then drop Jen and I a note. If you have a look at our show notes, you'll find the email address is there. You can just click on it and fire us off your query, and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Hey, Jen, remember a while back we uh, had a bit of a chat about a few different garden myths? Yes, we did. That was fun. Yeah. Well, I thought it was time to explore another garden myth. Okay. Which one? Peeing on your lemon tree. All right. That's a boy's <laughs> thing, isn't it? <laughs> but let, let's get down to brass tacks here. Is it is it real? Is it something you should do? Because, you know, the advocates say that basically it's really good for your lemon tree and it grows better and all of that sort of stuff. And Look, peeing is on your garden is good. Yeah. yeah. But don't do it on your grass. Dogs <laughs> do it all the time. Don't do it, yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting point to start with there, I think. That's uh, when you are actually doing a bit of troubleshooting with lawns, um, as happens when you work in retail nursery or you go around and help people out with their gardens, that's one of the things you encounter a lot. People say, oh, I've got a dead patch on my lawn. What do you think caused it? And the first question will be, do you have a, a dog? dog. Yeah. Um, and it's a good starting point to discuss this whole lemon tree thing, funnily enough, because what you'll find where a dog has peed on a lawn is that you will get a really dead scorch spot in the centre, mm-hmm. undeniably dead. But as it moves further towards the outside, it'll start to get a little bit green, a little bit green, and then there'll be an uprising where the grass will actually be really tall and healthy and green, and then it'll drop down to normal on the edge of it. So it's almost like a a crater where they've got good growth on the outside. That is because of the fact that the centre where the majority of the pea has landed, it's been too concentrated. 
And as you get towards the edges, it's been diluted. splashed and diluted mm-hmm. a little bit. And the fact is that urine is very high in nutrients and the sort of nutrients that plants like. So the the NPK that you see on your your typical fertilizer is what you find as one of the primary things in um, in urine, in whether it be human or dog. But it's very concentrated. So in the center, it'll burn, and to the outsides, it will actually be at the right dilution rate. Which is why peeing on a lemon tree is not a very good idea, but peeing in the soil around the lemon and tree that, is good, and then I water think is, it in. That's part of the point. Now, urine is basically 95% water. That, yeah. That's what it comes down but it's to. Still, it's still quite concentrated. And, and then, Yeah, then there's then there's that concentration of, of elements in there. So, um, And it is quite sterile. It's not, it's not something that is actually yucky when it comes out. It's only when the bacteria goes to work on those nutrients that that's when it gets smelly and everything mm-hmm. else. So I think I think the key is there that that yes it does work because it's it's effectively a very good liquid fertilizer but it can be number 1 too concentrated mm-hmm. um and number 2 it needs to, that dilution to stop the smell happening. So if you are going to go out and pee on a lemon tree, I would suggest that you don't do it in a, on a potted plant. For no. A start. <laughs> but can I just suggest you don't? Yeah, you don't. I mean. Well, permaculture gurus actually call it biological fertiliser. I know, I yeah, know. They, I, they I got have, a lecture from my name. niece the other day. Yeah. She's just gone on a three-week permaculture course, so. Yes. Well, and and there are some there are some very interesting historical uses of of urine. It's not just as a fertilizer. Yes, there are. Yeah. Um, it, like what? It used to be fermented and uh, used to soften and tan leather. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not. Well, I do is, believe which that. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, because it's because of all that material in the, yeah. in the urine is um, really. And the the and well and what happens when it ferments? It starts to generate ammonia, mm-hmm. and that's where the smell actually comes from. You see, um, and ammonia basically works to that's the main thing that works to soften the leather because of its its pH level. The Romans used to use it in laundries, in commercial laundries. They would have big tubs of pee that men would walk around on top of your clothes in the big tubs of pee, and that Did was the, the stain. Senators know that, and that was. <laughs> Stain remover. <laughs> senators know that? Um, it was used in very early stages in the process of creating gunpowder because it could be used to convert and extract potassium nitrate, which is one of the important components of gunpowder. I didn't know that, but that, that does make sense. Yeah. But you know the Chinese invented gunpowder. so They did. They did indeed. I so don't know they... if they did it with pee or not. Oh, but okay. it, it adds new meaning to busting for a pee, doesn't it? Does it certainly does. It's going to explode <laughs> if I don't have a pee. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the whole thing is that it's the fermenting that gets this ammonia that then creates all of these different things. But this is perhaps one of the grossest ones and it's been tracked back to being some definite quotes in Roman liter- literature about this. It was uh, fermented to just the right level and then used as a teeth whitener. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't be so revolted by it because, you know, very prominent Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi used to drink his pee every morning. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe. Um, and, you know, it is, he said it was very healthy and it, as you said before, it's sterile, but it's just, you know. Just something about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and look, the fact is though, 
for some reason, lemons have been singled out as being the I one. I don't yeah. know why. Maybe it's yeah. just that tradition of Australia always having a lemon tree in the garden. You at know, the going, bottom of the steps, at the bottom of the deck, so, yeah. the, so the lazy piddlers could just yes. make their way down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's got more to so do with it. So I don't know. Is it just an Australian thing or is it Mediterranean? No, well, there's been some experiments done overseas where they actually used diluted urine, they, so they diluted it down to a given ratio and they used it on general vegetable crops and they, they used it as a liquid fertiliser, applying it to the soil only, and they got very good crops of basically every type of vegetable they used it on. Yeah, but I know, but do the Mediterranean men in the average Mediterranean home go outside and pee on the lemon tree? Probably the olive tree. Oh, okay. (laughs) In which case, yeah. Now, I know a bloke who really knows his way around a veggie patch, and truth be told, he's probably peed on a lemon tree or two in his time. Phil Dudman is a writer, broadcaster, workshop presenter, tour guide, and gardener extraordinaire, and he is joining us now from his own personal paradise in northern New South Wales. Phil, how are you, mate? Oh, Adam, I am so well, and you're right. I have peed on a few lemons <laughs> in my time, and you know, I have. I've, I've actually positioned my lemon tree at the bottom of the back stairs, which makes it very easy to say goodnight to the tree. <laughs> That's right. I'm just going out to say goodnight to the tree, darling. <laughs> That's right. You know, and look, you know, the lemons are huge. So yeah, something. I've got. I've got a powerful brew, mate. Let's yeah. face it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Recycling the home brew. Hey, right. hey, look, we've just been talking. Talking about garden myths and oddities and all those sort of things. Have you got a favourite that you could share with us? Well, there are lots. There are so many that are going around. But look, I I have an overarching uh, one that uh, really applies to most things I do in the garden, but uh, particularly in the veggie patch. And one is that you need to dig over the soil to prepare your patch for growing veggies. So Mm. I am a no dig gardener, and mm. rather than getting my compost and uh, chopping up the soil and digging it through and mixing it through, I just put my compost on the surface as a mulch, and I plant into that. Now, there's mm. a few theories behind the benefits of this, but uh, I also see the benefits just through my own observation. Plants grow beautifully. Mm. Uh, you don't need to be digging your compost in because if you think about worms, um, they have evolved to come to the surface to get that little bit of humus, to get that little bit of leaf mold that's breaking down in the forest. They come to the surface, and when they're doing that, they're creating channels in the soil. And that's where you start to get this beautiful structure happening in your soil. If you're digging your compost in, you're just busting up the structure, which is the whole purpose of adding organic matter. So no digs ago for me. Mm, uh, when man. I don't dig, uh, I mm. find that uh, it's, it's a lot less work. It's one of the least enjoyable things I think in gardening is digging. So I don't, I, I, I miss out on that bit, which is great. But also, I get a lot less weeds through not digging the soil because every time you you dig it over, you're bringing all these old weed seeds to the surface, and they start popping up everywhere. But when I put my compost on the surface, I'm actually you know, smothering those weeds. Yeah, so get, you, it's a lot less work. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. There you go. Okay, and, mm. and trial and error has proved it to be effective. That's, that's um, yeah, it's a worthwhile tip to take on board there. Now, 
you and I have both been gardeners since before we made careers out of it. And I always find it fascinating about how people got into gardening in the first place. Are you are you one of these people that just sort of you can always remember gardening or did you kind of come to it at, at one particular stage in your life? Well, I didn't grow up in a gardening household. Um, but uh, one thing that did happen in my life as a kid is that, uh, you know, I was a cheeky little bugger around the house. I was the youngest in the family, always after attention. And I'd be sent out of the house regularly to get find something to do. Often that involved watering plants or, uh, you know, raking up leaves or something. And so they're kind of like a punishment. I didn't really feel like they were because I really enjoyed looking at the flowers <laughs> and hanging out with the plants, watering them. I got to know geraniums and gerberas and hibiscus and yeah. mangoes and all those things as a kid. And uh, But, you know, I didn't ever realize it was a thing. But yeah. when I left school, I studied architecture. Uh, I studied business. Uh, though, neither of those things worked for me. I joined a band and I moved from Brisbane to Sydney. That was probably the best thing that happened, you know, because it, it it freed me up and it sort of led, it sort of gave me a direction in life and that, you know, I just give things a go. Mm, uh, mm. But while I was in this band, the drummer of our band was a horticulturist. And on weekends living in Sydney, living in Chippendale, he had to get out of the city sometimes to, you know, be in the forest. Yeah. He'd take me with me. He'd take me along. And he'd teach me all these things about plants, which I just found absolutely fascinating. So like from then on, I was just totally, you know, on to him, asking him questions about stuff. Anyway, long story short, I went traveling, came back, and I was in my late 20s thinking, what am I going to do now? Bang, horticulture. And once yeah. I chose horticulture as a career, everything fell into place. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I do find very interesting is that like, it's an interesting hobby and and to make it a career choice, I think for any of us is a brave move because it is, it's something that is difficult and there's a lot of pathways you can choose and, and you and I have both been, been down quite a few of those. And what I find the most interesting is that as much as people like to think it's an exact science, there is just so much variability in everything, you know, and the mistakes that you can make and so much of it that you you learn as you go along. And often, as I think I've, I've mentioned to you before, it's really you got to a bit, you got to stuff up. You know, <laughs> the, the gardening is, yeah. a, is about stuffing lots of things up and killing things. And then out the other side, you think, oh, yeah, okay, that, that works. That doesn't work. And you, you, somehow learn from that it's uh, I, I find that very curious it's it proves how inexact it actually is if you if you get the point I'm trying to make oh absolutely and look you know most gardeners aren't really following science they're normally following uh, something that's been they've, they've picked up somewhere or been told and uh, or led to believe and you know, like you say there are a lot of these little uh, myths that are getting around, and people feel a little bit nervous about whether they're getting it right or wrong. It's a, it's a strange thing, but you know, the thing about gardening is you're right. It is there is a lot of trial and error. We all have ideas on how things should be, and I think you've just got to follow them. Mm. Uh, it's a very dynamic process, gardening. You know, and your ideas change, and seasons change, your preferences change. You want to change things, you want to move things around, and you know, but learning anything, you've got to be prepared to make those mistakes and not feel bad about it. And in my mind, that is the only way to learn. 
And when you've made a few mistakes and you've figured out how not to make that mistake again, then you move into the world of the experienced and wise yeah. gardener. <laughs> well, I tell you one of my biggest my biggest learning experiences when I was first started giving public presentations and that sort of thing was I learned very quickly never to talk in absolutes because you know you'd you'd say something that you know because you read it in a book so it must be true and then Mrs. Smythe Jones up the back of the room Mrs. Smythe Jones from out of Galaganbone or somewhere would say well if that's the case then what's it doing growing and flowering at my place you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. There are so many little variables. And, you know, what I've found through doing gardening talkback and, you know, uh, answering people's questions every week, uh, it really, you've got to check out a lot of things and check out where they are and what the weather's been like and all those mm, things. And, mm. you know, they will often affect what's happening. And all those little microclimates yeah. and things like that. Indeed. And, uh, you know, I, I do reckon we were joking before about, about you know, stuffing things up and killing things. And I do reckon, though, that that's the sign when you, you crossed over from being a casual gardener, so to speak, to really being into it is when you kill something and rather than, you know, blaming the universe and saying you're a black thumb and all of that sort of stuff, you look at it and you go, Hmm, I wonder what I did wrong. Let's go buy another one and see if I can not kill that, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you know, you I as you know, Adam, I'm a very keen veggie grower and I mm. do my best to uh be fairly self-sufficient in most things, but one thing in my garden that has been a challenge for years is uh, growing capsicum. You know, I talk to other people and say, capsicum, no problems, mate. I grow them all the time. It's fine. We have issues with fruit fly and that type of thing. That's mm-hmm. easy. No problem at all. You know, you bag your fruit, put a bag over the fruit, and you keep the fruit fly off. But the issue I've been having is uh, this little thrip that gets into the new foliage mm-hmm. and distorts it and, and uh, uh, makes it very small, stunted, and brittle. And, you know, the flowers drop off the foliage drops off and you just don't get any action with the plant. It's a really difficult pest to control organically. So I'm an organic gardener, so I'm mm. always looking for ways to do it. But I'm determined, just every year I'm planting capsicum in my garden <laughs> and trying to get over this issue. And this year, Adam, I think I might have finally You've done, done it. it. You, you, no, I think no. I've this so far, <laughs> the plants are looking absolutely amazing. And yep. what I did is I just went full tilt with uh, soil nutrition. So ah, okay, I yes. gave it, gave these plants everything. I mean, you know, I've been using compost and organic fertilizers and all these things for years, but I've upped the minerals. So I've gone full tilt with uh, rock minerals, and so far, these are the best looking capsicum plants yeah. I've ever grown now, so that's things that, are looking good. That's interesting because we were talking to Graham Sait um, from Nutritech Solutions a few episodes back and he was pointing out that too often we've got that emphasis just on the, the NPK and we mm. forget all of those smaller minerals and the nutrients and they are the ones that help build the disease resistance and the pest resistance. So so you, it sounds like you've hit the right balance there and no more will you be sacrificing <laughs> capsicums to the great garden gods. <laughs> that's right. I've got away with it with so many things just through uh, my compost, but uh, finally I realised that this is where you know the future lies. Adam yes. is in uh, is getting those minerals, those rock minerals, into the soil because you know they often talk about us humans lacking minerals, mm. and you know I started using them really just to 
give plants more minerals so that when I eat them, I'm getting more minerals into my body. But well, you know, uh, wow, yeah. the plants are thriving; they're loving it. Yeah, and that's it's pretty pretty simple logic, isn't it? That if the food it doesn't is. contain the minerals, then you're not going to contain the minerals. Exactly. Now, so you know, it's it's working for the plants. So watch out, mate. I'm going to be jumping out of the skin the, skin <laughs> the next time you see me. Now, if <laughs> folks want to get into veggie or fruit gardening, what do you reckon are a couple of absolutely you know thinking about somebody that hasn't really tried this sort of area before? What do you reckon are mm. a couple of foolproof um, veggies and maybe even some fruit trees they could give a try. Yeah, all right. Well, look, you know, cherry tomatoes are always a good one. You know, people love to grow tomatoes. They can be tricky at times, but the cherry ones are really, really reliable and Mm. prolific and you don't need to do much with them. You know, you you barely need to train them. You can even just let them run around the ground and you'll get a really good crop. So fantastic. Um, Lettuces. Lettuces, I find, are pretty good to grow. You've just got to keep the moisture up to them and a little bit of liquid fertilizer. Say once a fortnight, you'll grow great lettuces and you get to enjoy them and eat them regularly. You know, once you've had homegrown lettuce in your salad, it's very difficult to go back to buying, you know, hydroponic lettuces down at the the supermarket. Mm, mm. Um, Asian veg, spring onions, I find, are a great thing to grow as well. Um, Herbs. You know, grow your basil, grow your parsley. You know, the the the, the joy in cooking is, uh, and, and the flavours come in all the herbs that you add. So if you've got them growing at the back door, uh, you're going to save a lot of money, and you're, you're going to be enjoying everything that comes out of your kitchen. Mm. You know, Mediterranean herbs. I think when it comes to fruit trees, uh, I've got to say, you, you you the old mulberry tree is a pretty uh, tough old tree and a huge producer. Now people get worried about planting a mulberry tree because, as we know, they can get they huge. They can get enormous, yeah. Yeah, but I've got uh, I've got one in my garden and I prune it every year uh, and I keep it down to no bigger than about two and a half metres. So after it's fruited each year, I chop it back hard and mm. it gets new growth right through the summertime and on that new growth that forms, the following season, it's it's covered in fruit. So mm. I chop it back each year and I get just enough mulberries for my needs from doing that. Well, we had at, and, at our last place, we had a weeping mulberry, which our little girl Amber mm. and her friends loved because they'd get in underneath the canopy and you'd just hear giggling and the tree would be shaking away as they sat there eating mulberries from the inside uh, out. So. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, they are just kids love them and, uh, you know, and, and adults love them too. We we always freeze our excess so we've got them for, you know, desserts and smoothies and that type of thing. So easy to grow. I mean, I don't do anything to it other than prune it. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they certainly are a good option. And there's dwarf forms too, I've discovered recently because I have put a dwarf in at our place. So, yes, mulberries can be definitely a good one. I reckon bananas too, you know, Phil. I, I've only just started growing bananas reasonably recently and have been very impressed with how easy they are to grow. And, yes, I'm in the subtropics, but when we were in Sydney, I grew bananas there um, in a nice, warm, sheltered corner. And I've seen fantastic posts on social um, of people as far down as south as Melbourne, um, you know, finding the right little sheltered, warm corner and growing good bananas without, without you know, any great pest or disease problems and uh, relatively yeah. low maintenance. I'd have to agree with you, Adam. I'm looking out at my bananas at the moment and there's a nice big bunch there hanging there, almost ready to pick, and I do nothing to them, really, absolutely nothing. They just rely on a little bit of natural rainfall. 
Uh, I think I watered them in when I planted them. It's been incredibly dry here uh, where I am. And but these plants are still looking fantastic. So yes. yeah, I have to agree. Give those ones a go. Yes. And what else is looking absurdly good in your veggie garden <laughs> at the moment, Phil? Oh mate, oh, we are doing our best to live on zucchinis at the moment. I'm picking <laughs> two, or, two or three a day. Uh, and you know, when you when you Google recipes on zucchinis, you find that there are a lot of ideas out there. Yeah, so uh, yeah. yes, yes, my wife and I are living on them. I've got bucket <laughs> loads of beetroot, uh, carrots, fantastic carrots, uh, all done without digging the, the carrots. So I'm getting lovely long straight carrots in yes. undug soil. Yeah. Uh, silver beet, uh, we've got tomatoes coming on, eggplants. And uh, beautiful peaches and nectarines. I'm growing some tropical low-chill varieties there and loads of low-chill apples coming on at the moment too. So, My, my, pro- uh, my producer, Artemis, is just shaking her head going, Phil, don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, you know, uh, growing your food, it's, um, it's really a lifestyle choice. You know that you—you—it's not something you can just throw a few things in and forget about it, unless it's bananas and mulberries, of course. But you know, I—I get really excited about harvesting stuff from the patch. So I never find it a chore. I find it an absolute pleasure to be out there amongst the veggie patch and seeing things thriving. It's that joy of growing things, and when you can. When you can eat them as well, it's just yeah. so in, incredibly and deeply satisfying. Well, and, and from that nutritional viewpoint, you're eating them at their point of at their their peak of goodness. You know that's the really important thing. You're getting that flavour. You're getting that nutrition out of them. Now, look, if folks want to keep up with your gardening adventures, the easiest way I reckon is to uh, get onto Instagram and look at Phil underscore Dudman underscore gardening and they will find everything that you're up to. Phil, thank you very much for joining us, mate. It has been huge. Lovely to chat with you, Adam. All the best. Gardening by the Moon with Milton Black. Hi, Milton. Happy New Year. And a very happy new year to you too, Jenny. I mean, it's been a wonderful sort of Christmas period and festive season for those that sort of don't actually celebrate Christmas. But um, I must say it's been a a pretty good little gardening period last year. So this year it could even be better because uh, what's actually happening at the moment, um, we're going in today with the moon and Taurus, great sort of planting day. It's Anything above ground. So Taurus is semi-fertile, so you can still put your your lettuces and your beans and your peas and things like this, and probably most of them were eaten over the harvesting times Mm. prior to Christmas. But but you can still plant these, and the weather's still good for this sort of thing. Moon and Taurus, above ground crops. Now, tomorrow, the 8th of January, uh, not good days for planting because the moon is in Gemini. So that's a a non-fertile sign. But what I'd suggest you you do there around that particular period is just clean up the garden a little bit and try and do some, uh, not necessarily big maintenance, but just a little bit of minor pruning and things like this Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And and some of the jobs that uh, you can do there is dig up those early potatoes and your garlic and your shallots and things like this. And um, 
uh, you can cut and pull out other veggies as they mature as well. So it's, it's basically still a harvesting time over the cycle. But when the moon moves into Cancer on Thursday the 9th at around about 6.43 p.m., this is where the, the moon's getting ready now for a, a big sort of um, ready planting cycle because it's a fertile sign. So if you want to get into your garden for an hour or two before it gets too dark on uh, Thursday the 9th, um, from about um, half past six, quarter to seven, and spend an hour in there. And uh, also on Friday, a beautiful day for above ground crops as well, because the moon comes up to a full moon the next day on Saturday, the 11th, and uh, the moon also enters into Leo. So you don't plant at all on that Saturday, nor do you plant on Sunday because the moon's in Leo. So you can do all your planting on Friday, have the weekend off. And also through that week, it's uh, usually when the moon's waxing, it's very good for below ground crops. But the moon's in Leo and enters Virgo in Tuesday, and it's in uh, Virgo on Wednesday. So they're non-fertile signs. So you really don't do any planting there. But on Thursday, that's the only day of the week that you can actually plant below ground crops. You can still put some potatoes or some beets and radishes and things like anything that grows below the ground because the moon is on its uh, wax, uh, on its wane, sorry, mm -hmm. and it's in the semi-fertile sign of Libra. Now, the 17th, the last quarter of the moon, even though it's in the fertile sign of Libra, no planting because that's where the, the moon is squaring with the sun and obviously it does make it very difficult for the plants. But what you can do... On Saturday, the eighteenth, um, running right through to the um, twenty uh, to the nineteenth, those are excellent, excellent days for doing all your garden maintenance. Now, if you want to go and spray those aphids, if you want to uh, spread some compost, if you want to make compost, if you want to fertilise, if you want to uh, uh, give those lawns a little bit of a, a hurry up as well, that's an excellent time to do it. So, no planting but garden maintenance okay. over that period of the uh, uh, the 18th and 19th. Just keeping so it neat. It's, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a good day for, for doing that. But I think there's a lot of work to do in January. You know, it's like, um, you know, you can thin out and, and um, you know, any successful sowing of plants and things like that. You can, you know, really get into a little bit of maintenance over this month. And you can crop those potatoes if you've still got them there in your garden and hoe the weeds out and all that sort of thing too around that period of the, the last uh, two days. So basically it's a bit of a mixed uh, week, but I suppose after the uh, festive season, still people are on holidays and are not sort of really interested in their garden a lot. But for those that are, that's what you've got. Now, I'll tell you something too. What? According to the old Greek uh, mythosity here, um, the Greek myth says that uh, Endymion and Selene, the moon was Selene, of course, yeah. fell in love with a handsome young fellow called Endymion. And uh, actually, Endymion and Selene bore 40 daughters together. Wow. That's a lot of kids, yes. 40 daughters. Now, one version of the story says that Selene placed Endymion in internal sleep to prevent him from dying and to keep him forever beautiful. That's how the myth goes in the Greek mythology. So this is why Endymion in Latin was named Bluebell, hence Bluebell in regards to plants, and Blue Moon, you see. Uh -huh. And in the month 
in the month, when a month has two full moons, the second full moon is called a blue moon. That's right. And another definition of the blue moon is the third full moon of any season or quarter year containing four total full moons. So that's where the, the blue moon came from, or the, the myth came from about the blue moon. So that's um, it's an interesting little bit of gossip, isn't it, really? Yeah. I'm just still perplexed about those 40 daughters. <laughs> 40 daughters, I'll say. Yeah. Incidentally, incidentally, what do you call a bug on the moon? A bug on the moon? A moon buggy? No. What? A lunatic. <laughs> okay. I'll see you next week, Jen. Okay. Bye. Well, that was another great episode, Jen. I just want to rush out into the garden myself. Oh, I'm not stopping you. Off you go. <laughs> Adam, where can people find you? They can find me in the garden or they, oh. can, they can look me up on YouTube. Just search Adam Woodham and I'll pop up there. No problem at all. Or on Instagram, of course. And if you want more garden inspiration before the next episode, you can pick up the latest copy of Better Homes and Gardens magazine at selected supermarkets and news agencies. So we'll see you next time, Jen. You bet. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.